something extra. You can, you, there's, there's pain. Pain is this way. That's a reflection on it. But when, when it becomes my pain, out of avicca, not, not out of convention, but out of avicca, then, then my pain proliferates on into, I don't want that pain, why do I have to suffer, how can I get rid of it? How can I get away from it? Because physical pain tends to bring the, that kind of attitude of aversion. And aversion, uh, when we get caught into aversion, then we, we suffer from that, of wanting to get rid of something that we have that we don't like, don't want. And so we suffer because we have to be with something we don't want. And that's suffering. That's dukkha. When we're just with pain as it is, then there's no suffering. We're not, we're not creating dukkha. So pain is just that. It's not even pain. It's just a sensation. It's just the way it is. And the more mindful, accepting, aware of it as it really is, then we make no problems about it. When we make no problems about it, then things, their, their karmic force, when it's time, ceases. And therefore, we're not making any, any, any connections to it. That which has arisen to cease, according to its nature, is nothing personal, nothing created, nothing added, nothing, uh, n nothing made of it. It's just as it is. The truth of all sate sankarani all that arises ceases. It's just the way things are. It's not that things shouldn't arise, or we're making a moral judgment against arising that arising is bad, it's just the mere understanding and uh, through wisdom that what arises ceases. And then we say, tape tama anatta, all tama is, not, is anatta or not self. <coughs> so that means all sankaras are not self. Because <coughs> sankaras are dhammas. So that all the sankharas are, are not self. And when there's no self, when, when, the, when, the mind, when the thinking mind ceases and there's no attachment, that isn't self either. There's no need to call it anything. It's like it's not necessary just to, to sit here and think that I'm sitting here. That's totally unnecessary for me to sit here and think, I'm sitting here, I'm sitting here, I'm sitting here, I'm sitting here. Me, Sumedho Bhikkhu, I'm sitting here. It's not necessary to, to name it. It is sitting, body sitting, it's like this. It's not anybody. Well, that's you, Venerable Sumedho, you're sitting there. But that's something added, isn't it? It's just it's just this, as it is. Abiding in that emptiness where there's no self, no self arising, or no belief, no assumptions about a self or a permanent self or a personality, there is intelligence, because there's wis we, one can align oneself with wisdom there. There's wisdom, there's the, the full use of intelligence, aligned with wisdom, there's knowing, clarity, which is not, as soon as we claim it as a personal quality, we've lost it. I mean, I'm a very wise man, and that's a stupid statement. If I go around thinking, I'm a very wise man, or I am a Buddha, or I am the Buddha, or whatever, then that's a stupid statement. It comes from stupidity. So it's not a, the, the, 
to go around thinking that, that, that intelligence and wisdom is personal is having, is, is only comes from a mind of an individual who is unenlightened, unawakened, does not see things as they really are. Because as we realize things as they are, such thoughts are seen only as thoughts. They're no longer grasped and made into a person who has become anything or attained anything whatsoever. So it's equally stupid to think you haven't attained anything. I haven't attained anything. I've been meditating now for how many years and I don't think I've attained anything. I haven't gotten anywhere. That's also another, if you be really believe that you are somebody who hasn't attained anything, hasn't gone anywhere, then there's no wisdom in that, in that either. That's a stupid statement. You've missed the whole point. And it's not, it's not attaining or achieving or becoming somebody, is it? All that is the self-view that ceases. And there's the knowing that, that what arises ceases. Now this is training, using, uh, developing vicha rather than avicha. We're using vicha. You're not going to ever attain vicha. You'll never achieve it or attain it. You just use it. They have the teachings of the Buddha. They're vicha teachings. They're, they're teachings that, that point to the way things are. So we, there's not anything that you you uh, will find in the future something you have every opportunity to use more and more in your life here at Amaravati. Avicca then is is the view that I am somebody, I am a person, and really believe it, and that I am the five conduct. That this is reality, the real world is is the real world that's been conditioned into my mind. Robert Jackman, born in Seattle, Washington, 1934. Son of Helen and Clarence Jackman. Born in the Providence Roman Catholic Hospital. About 11 o'clock in the morning, July 27th. on a Friday in the year of the dog <laughs> and then I went to uh, uh, primary school and I went to Franklin High School our green and black so true we'll conquer all for you Some of these stupid things you never forget. <laughs> Gwendolyn, what are you to me? <laughs> so that one has a kind of personal history that seems real. We believe in that. that they come from a line, a certain maybe ancestral line, and, and that we are uh, from this, uh, we're being born in, in America, we're Americans, this is reality, and on and on in this way. The unquestioned conditioned world, because this was, this was conditioned into the mind. One isn't born with a name. You're given a name, aren't you? You're not born thinking, I am an American or I'm an Englishman. That comes through the conditioning process. All that is conditioned, isn't it? It's added to you over the years. The way the world views, like being born in the United States, uh, we were told that the United States is the best country in the whole world. Now, I don't think they ever taught that in England, did they? I never heard 
a British person ever say that. That's peculiar to Americans. But I don't think it's because I was born in America. I think it was one of those cultural values they place into your mind called nationalism. And yet one can believe all that. Very, very, you know, I'm surprised. I was a fairly curious kind of child anyway, so I didn't, wasn't going to accept anything too easily. But a, a lot of my f little friends actually believed all that. <laughs> they actually believed it. They didn't seem to question it. When I started questioning it, I was called anti-American. Mike, you, 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 didn't, you didn't support the party line. You were an enemy. Now, we're also conditioned with various uh, feelings about ourselves, like what, what people say about us, what, how attractive we are, how good we are. Are you a good little boy or a good little girl? And are you... Uh, from what class do you come from? Are you... Uh, you come from a good family? Or are you... Do you behave yourself? Do you have good manners? Or are you uh, a barbarian? Are you a brat? Are you... Uh, you have a bad temper, or are you greedy, or uh, are you lovable or unlovable, or whatever? And all these these attitudes come to us as as, as we're growing up. Don't we? Views about ourselves that we can regard as real, but they're actually views that are conditioned into the mind. We're born into these families and these society classes and societies and so forth, and. And, and we're just continually kind of bombarded with all these self-views. When we go to school, then we're comparing ourselves with the other children. We have certain views about girls. And, and if, you're, if you're a little boy, you have certain views about girls. Remember, we used to hate little girls. Up to a certain age, you hate girls. We would form these little clubs, airplane clubs, and that. First rule we'd have was no girls. <laughs> was during the Second World War. I was uh, obsessed with airplanes. I was. Uh, I was. I. I had the little uh, aircraft spotting guides that they you could buy and I would try to I'd, I'd have binoculars and try to look for enemy aircraft over <laughs> Seattle <laughs> none ever came <laughs> but I knew the statistics of the German and the Japanese uh, planes just waiting to, be, to catch the first glimpse of an enemy aircraft and be the first one to report it Then we had different ad, uh, different competitive attitudes among little boys, and who was this, the toughest, the strongest, uh, and who was good at this or good at that. There's all this self self views were formed in relationships of whether you were uh, could prove you were better or worse, and there was always some bully around, wasn't there? Remember in the neighborhood I grew up, there's always some bully coming to to uh, pick on you. I was fortunately one of the, always quite tall for my age, and I think that was I realized that that in some ways a kind of an asset because uh, I guess height is a kind of a, it has a kind of self-protective mechanism in it. You're not uh, remember that oftentimes the, the the smaller boys seem to get it more than the taller ones. Except there's always somebody that wanted to see if he could could challenge the tall one. Uh, my nature, I'm not a fighter at all. 
used to be painful to have to get involved in these silly things. <laughs> but then the self-view is formed to all this, isn't it? You, you, your, your view of yourself and the world and, and how pleasant or painful or, or how, how many advantages you have or disadvantages are conditioned. And, 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 and this is all very much a, an assumption of a self, one's worth or worthlessness. His perception is a condition and is put into your mind, isn't it? It's not the nature of your mind at all. It's not empty. It's not wise. It's not intelligent. It's merely something that that goes in, and if you never question, never look and examine and see the Dhamma, the truth of the way it is, then you could spend your whole life operating from some very stupid suggestion that was placed in your mind at a very young age. Now you can see this with my mother, for example, uh, told me that that she was an unwanted child. And so when my grandmother found out she's going to have my mother, she tried to have an abortion. Failed. My mother came out. And grew up with this idea of being unwanted because of that. This kind of nagging, nagging fear her whole life. Now she's over it for 86. She's... she's <laughs> She's transcended it, but I remember this was, this was, and she's a very nice person, and everybody's wanted her her whole life, except her mother. <laughs> so she, she was, and I think even her mother did, and, but sometimes her mother didn't. But this, no matter how, uh, she had a, a devoted husband, and my sister and I, and we all, we all loved her very much, and a lot of friends. We always had oodles of friends. Was always considered a, a very lovable person. Everybody welcomed. But this incredible, haunting, nagging thing in her mind is, was, nobody wants me. So that was obviously something that was probably from the womb. And you, you think of that, uh, if, you know, if a mother doesn't want a child in, in, when it's in the womb, I'm sure that it's picking up these bad vibes from the mother. Because <laughs> this is, we're dealing with total sensitivity now. And we're not dealing with persons or people, but, but we realize that this whole universe and everything is, is, is about sensitivity and feeling. This sensual realm, the conditioned realm, is is fully sensitive in feeling. So, uh, when you when people ask about whether a fetus is actually a conscious living being or something, you know, whatever, of course, it's it's alive and it feels part of it's a part of the totality. Who are we to say that just because it it isn't uh, it isn't fully mature that it isn't feeling anything and it's not nothing seems more sensible to assume that it is feeling totally feeling totally sensitive to the environment it's in so we pick up don't we uh, uh, we can live a, a neurotic life from childhood to to death just on these never questioned mistaken identities, identities, attachment to the conditioned realm, and then suffer accordingly, because all that avicca can only create endless amount of misery, isn't it? And Buddha made this very clear, the soka pariteva tukatoma nasa upayasa sequence. So then the investigation, when, when we realize 
that all of that is just conditioned. It's nothing more than like, they, they call it like soap bubbles or foam on the sea. And they use these terms, meaning that they just have an appearance of being substantial, but when fully investigated, there's nothing there. There's no core, there's no kind of center to it or anything real. It's merely an illusory appearance of, of being solid, but when investigated, there's nothing there. So the, the conditioned realm is, uh, is, is, ne- is not to be despised or to be negated or rejected, but to be seen for what it is. And that's why when we say all that begins ends, all that arises ceases, all Dhamma is not self, is actually being in that refuge of Buddha, the, posi- the Buddha position of seeing things as they really are, because we're no longer taking the conditions and judging them in personal, in the way of, of being personal, being me and mine. Good and bad are conditions. What pleasure and pain, and, and the whole, all the conditioned realm, whether it's fantastic or boring, or whatever its quality or quantities might be, we're just observing the, the, its true nature as is that, that it arises and ceases, and that we begin to really see that it's empty of any self-quality or any kind of permanent self-quality, because there, there's no, you can't find a permanent self in anything whatsoever. And that's a relief. I find that a relief. It really it was really heavy and burdensome to be a person, I found. To all the conditioning that went into my life before I had the insight into anatta, and then get increasingly heavy at 33, you can really create incredible heavy burden of self-views and fears and anxieties and worries by the age 33. burnt-out case. So I felt really ancient and old at 33. 32, I just felt really worn out because of this incredible burden I'd accumulated. It was weighing me down. But then the insight into anatta was a was a re- like a relief. And this, sometimes they refer to the, the realization of that, of non-attachment, of nibbana, or the, uh, or the realization of not-self as relief. In some Mahayana sutra or literature, they, what is it like? It's, it's like? it's like, it's the feeling you have when you've been carrying something very heavy and you put it down. What is that? It's relief, isn't it? (laughs) You notice what it's like to to feel relief from a heavy burden. Not to have to become anything. Not, not, like in in this life here, think of how you can make being a monk or a nun into kind of a, a burdensome duty. That it becomes... You, you become weighed down by the awesome uh, duty that you've involved yourself in. You've got to become someone who gets rid of your kilesas, your defilements, and you purify your mind and be a virtuous, impeccable person with, uh, full of loving kindness and compassion and joy and uh, all this. And, and then, oh, God, what a burden. Got to become all that. Look at me. I'm so far away. I, mean thought sometimes. I, I even curse silently in my mind. I've even felt irritation. Sometimes even downright anger and even downright murder. Murderous feeling towards some of these people here. And now I'm supposed to be kind of like like a one of these uh, bodhisattvas. May all beings be happy. 
so that we can make the holy life into a burden, an impossible burden that we carry around. But then that's misuse of it, isn't it? Because the holy life is, is a life without a burden. Purity is not, doesn't mean that you never think impurely. It means that you know impure thoughts are just conditions of the mind and nothing. So if you think, oh, I have impure thoughts, so I'm an impure person. I'm a dirty old man. I'm a hopeless case. I'm no good. I have these impure thoughts. Then you, then that's a heavy burden that I've created. But any impure thoughts that happen to go through the mind are just seen. What are they? They arise, they cease. I've never seen, I've never had an impure thought that had any permanency to it. Have you? Anyone here? Or maybe you never have impure thoughts. I've noticed this about, and pure thoughts also, any thoughts, they are definitely impermanent. And that's, oh, that's, that's the truth of the way it is. Impure thoughts, when seen as that which begins and ends, lose that, loses that sense of being a personal thing. You're looking at its quality, as it, I mean, you're looking at its characteristic. Impure thoughts begin and they end. And that way you're not saying, oh, this is an impure thought, I shouldn't be thinking like this. I wish I had a, a mind that was pure and never had an impure thought. And blah, 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 goes on into a heavy burden, guilt and, and remorse and worry and, and, uh, and feeling of self-aversion arises from that. But once it's seen exactly as it is, that's purity, isn't it? The mind is, is, is pure. It, it, your mind can never be stained. It's never impure. It's a totally impossible. Impurity only is an illusion of attachment to the, the, to the view of the, fi the five khandhas as being oneself. It's only an illusion, illusory impurity. It's, not, it's nothing real. Now these terms, the conditioned and the unconditioned, the born, the unborn, the created, the uncreated, the originated, the unoriginated, these are worth contemplating the, because they, they relate to each other. And notice that the conditioned, the conditioned world, the born and the created, are what we feel most used to. This is what we identify with, what we, what we're conditioned by these, uh, and what we attach to in the conditioned realm as a self. The unconditioned then is not a, an annihilation of anything but of seeing the relationship that, that whatever arises ceases. So you're aware of just like when thought ceases there's no condition arising at that moment when a thought ceases. So then you, 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 you notice, you realize that cessation. There's no condition there, so that's the unconditioned. As simple as that. You realize that. You, you notice. Because you don't notice that unless it, you, you make an effort to notice because your habit is to go from one condition to another. Isn't it? You saw you the, the totally unenlightened, unawakened avicca, bhajaya, sankara character is just going from one condition to another. Now, in, in our 
experience as a human being. This is the way what we must learn from, from this very humbling uh, way. I mean, it doesn't seem like very much, does it? Not like being able to stand at the at the top of the universe and watch the expansion and contraction of a universal system in all its grandeur. I mean, just this, just the ability to think and to, to see the nature of thought and perception arise and cease in the mind. That's what we must learn from, from that. Not from the grand position of God, from the, from the, uh, from the position outside it all, in the, outside the macrocosm. But into the microcosm of the way things are within the limitations of this of the of the forms we find ourselves with. So we explore, examine, investigate the condition and the unconditioned, or space and form. Like space, say just with the eye, isn't it? The conditions are in the space here. Unknowing of not knowing of mystery. And it leaves us it leaves the mind the conditioned mind the conditioned mind stops. It can't it can't conceive something. It can't conceive the unconditioned or the unborn, the uncreated, unoriginated. You can't you can't imagine I hope on this uh, retreat that some of the uh, insights and understanding of Dhamma certainly seems to be coming through to many of you because you can well see it is a whole change of of uh, attitude really a way of seeing and, and reflection it is very, very different from the habitual, worldly, cultural, ethnic, conditioned world that we've all regarded as real. Just the limitation of our, just the, the way we tend to think in, in the modern Western world, which is based on the, on the assumption that the material world is ultimately real. And therefore, goes on question when we talk about reality as being the kind of, um, that Reality is what we, what we see, the objective world. Reflection then allows us to question that, what is, what is generally regarded as real, not to deny it or to, uh, to take any, just a, uh, take a position of a negativity towards it, but to investigate and examine. That's the, the purpose of the Buddha Dhamma is to examine, investigate, look into the nature of things. And so the self is questioned. What is the self? Is there a permanent self? Is there a soul? Is there a creator God? What is the creation? What is creativity? What is, uh, what, what is it that creates? What is death? In our position as human beings, then, we, we observe the, what is the, the beginning and the ending. And we just do, do anapanasati, mindfulness of the breath. If you can extrapolate from just that, from just the beginning, and see that is that, that's all there is, the beginning and then the, the point between the beginning and the end and the ending. 
of an inhalation, exhalation. Just that pattern alone, isn't it, is the pattern of all conditioned phenomena, the arising and the cessation. You can't, it would be absurd to think of an arising without a, without a cessation, just like to think of it, of an inhalation that didn't ever exhale. If it was just a one inhalation, it would be, well, that, that would be totally absurd, wouldn't it? And yet, we can assume that there is a, a kind of continuous development or progress or expansion without its, its uh, exhalation or its cessation. And the position of the Buddha is the position of knowing. When the refuge in the Buddha, Bhutangsanangachami, is taking the Buddha position. Not becoming a Buddha, but being, the, being that which is awake. If you take refuge in Buddha, then it means that that refuge is in mindfulness. Buddha's the mindful one, so if we take refuge in Buddha, we do what Buddhas do. which doesn't mean sitting on lotuses. It means being mindful. And it's the Buddha that sees the Dhamma, or the way things are. We're not asking you to see anything in particular. Oh, we're not asking you to look for lights, or, or for devadas, or for Brahma, uh, Brahma gods, or, or for anything, anything at all. I mean, some of you see peculiar things, some of you don't see anything peculiar, just monotonous conditions, or just the pain, or whatever. But whether it's uh, fantastic and odd and peculiar, or nutty, wacky, stupid, or trivial, or just one inhalation, one exhalation, or just a, a pain in your knee, it's a, you're observing it as it is. It's a, something that arises and ceases, begins and ends. So that's taking the Buddha, refuge in Buddha, the Buddha position of knowing mindfulness, seeing things as they are. Then the avicca, if we, if we get caught in avicca, then we don't see it as it is. Suddenly it becomes more than that. My pain, my breathing, my inhalation, my exhalation, my fantasy life, my lights, my devadas, my Brahma gods, or I'm, my lack of having anything interesting in my mind. I'm just a boring old not, nobody. No Brahmas, no devas, no lights. Just boring old pain in the back. Just a boring old inhalation, boring old exhalation. It's mine. I'm just a boring inhaler and exhaler. That's added, isn't it? Mine, me inhaling and me. There's exhaling, there's inhaling and exhaling. But there's nothing to add to it. It's just this way. My inhalation is something extra. And if from a vicha, then, then that, that means that, that uh, I'm no longer really seeing it as it is. I've made something, something, I've added something to it. It isn't the way it is. And so that addition, well, if as long as there's a vicha, will influence my life and my way and my rights and my body and my feelings and my memories and, and then everything becomes me and mine. Everything is interpreted from this selfish view. I'm getting old, I'll die. These are, these are my robes, this is my life. And then because there's me, there's going to be you. And then the whole world uh, with all its complexities and problems arise 
you feel frightened, fear and desire predominate, and the result of all that is Dharamarana Sokapariteva Tukatomanasa Upayasa, misery. So there we are. Just from one light error, taking it all in the wrong way. I mean, actually, this is it, whether it's fantastic uh, images in your mind, hallucination, mad or, or sane or whatever, or boring pain or inhalation, exhalation, the Buddha is the one who knows that all that arises ceases. All Dhamma is not self. It's not a permanent self. Nothing is me. There's no real uh, no real objective, me or mine. Like one of the questions people ask is, well, and who is it that knows? You're trying to find, you're trying to find yourself. I'll ask you, who is it that knows? If I, if, if I, if I should ask you, who's sitting here? You think, He's just playing a game, isn't it? Some kind of interesting koan, Arjun Tomato. Because he's sitting here, isn't he? Who's sitting here? I don't have to ask who's sitting here because I'm sitting here. Not a matter of who, is it? It's just the fact that there's the sitting here. So there's the knowing. There's the, it's not any one who knows. There is knowing. And the who is unnecessary, it's added, it's an assumption, it's from, a, from the avicca position of, of somebody, some separate person, some entity that has a reality uh, uh, that we, we create, that reality. The, that reality is not real, it's an illusory reality. Now we've heard some rather profound reflections on the Paticca Samupada during this time. So that it's uh, quite, quite uh, wonderful to hear uh, you using your minds for Dhamma rather than for selfish uh, attachment. Or for guilt, remorse, self-disparagement, fantasy, all the way we can use our minds in, in wasteful ways, or just try to suppress everything. Just try not to think. And I remember one of my insights years ago, when I was a Samanera, and this, there was this Canadian monk, uh, his name was Sumino, not the, our Sumino, but this is another Sumino. And this Sumino uh, was, he told me that all we have to do is stop thinking. So I thought, well, I'll try that. So I started to try to stop thinking. Oh, it was really a very difficult thing to do. <laughs> Just an act of will just to stop thinking made me even think more. How do, how do I stop thinking? Then uh, my mind would start, would go and to start thinking about stopping thinking. Then I could just, I, my mind at that time was so, was so obsessed with thought it didn't even notice that, that when I wondered, how do I stop thinking? My mind actually stopped at that moment. I didn't notice that. Because then I start thinking about, well, how do I, how can I stop thinking? There is no perspective on thought, no space, no emptiness to see or to notice that thinking arises and ceases. It just seemed to be one continuous chain of one thought after another. There's never any real there was no, there wasn't a realization of cessation or of the thinking process as having ceased. 
because all I knew at that time was uh, the only time there was there was any sense of of being somebody or being conscious was through thought. And so that year, I began to really work with my mind when I was a seminar, really ex- explore it. Remember reading Charles Loop's book, the Chan and Zen series, and, uh, the first volume with the Huateau. I, I developed this Huateau, a Chinese uh, kind of a Chinese Zen uh, form where. You, you, I, I'd usually, this was my letting go practice. I'd say, let go. I'd say, who is it that lets go? And I'd examine all around the, who is it that lets go? And, and uh, just explore that question. And the, and the uh, exploration of doubt, because that's a question, isn't it? It leaves your mind in the state of doubt. Who, who lets go? Who? Then I'd see question marks in my mind. Who is it that lets go? Or what is it that lets go? And keep doing that so so that just that that investigation of that of that foiteau. The, the the beginning of it, the first word, then the end of it with the question, and the exploration, investigation of the mind that wasn't thinking, and then the mind that had a thought in it, the thought and the and the space around the thought, the end of the thought, the end of the the question. Then the purpose of the Huato was to develop that practice around the question, where the, the arising of the doubt. They had one sutra called the Diamond Sutra, Cutter of the Doubt. And when I first read that sutra, it was, it left my mind in total state of bewilderment and doubt. Bewilderment and another kind of doubt, isn't it? This Mahayana stuff is extremely bewildering. I think that's all it's meant to be, just kind of boggle your mind so the thinking process stops. But that's fair enough, isn't it? That's skillful means to completely zap you so your thinking process stops because you can't really think of what it means. What is it trying to say? Of course, the, the desire to know and to figure it all out comes up. Wanting to know, wanting to have an answer, wanting to 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 say this is what it means. Is how our our minds are conditioned through modern education to answer the questions. As soon as a question comes, we feel obligated, a compulsive, uh, an, an impulse to answer. But in investigation of of the mind, we're, we're observing this, the impulse to answer, the, the, the obligation to answer the question, rather than just being aware of not knowing something, the unknown. Now, before that, I never thought that, that I always assumed that you should know everything, and that, and then a, that a Buddha would know everything would have all the answers, neat little answers, all nicely, mighty there, this is the question fired and the answer, pop, zoom, there it is, just comes up immediately. Uh, and that you're, you're, uh, a, and you know everything, you, you know, you, you know everything about everything. And your mind's so quick, you're so intelligent, so brilliant, that any question asked, you can answer it immediately, not without a hesitation or even having to ponder. That was my image of, of what a Buddha could do, kind of like super intellect, super brain. But instead, what we were doing, what I was doing with this water, was was accepting and noticing 
not knowing something. Now, what do you think that's kind of lazy man's practice, or you think that's right to, to sit around and not know something? Shouldn't we all be striving to know, to figure everything out, to have all the answers? Because there's a there's a kind of guilt and a sense of restlessness, and when when you what is that? What do we what 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 is the answer to that question? And then we, we either drift away from it because we, the, uh, we forget it, try to forget it, repress it, or we sit there trying to, to figure it all out. And the purpose of the Huato was to just observe that, the struggle and the compulsiveness, the obsessiveness, the desire to know, to have the answer. So ask a question just like, who am I? And then the boring old answer would be, I am tomato beacon. So what? So that wasn't a very satisfying answer. <coughs> you ask the question, and, and you, you say, no, tomato beacon is not the answer. You're not going to settle for that, because that's the, everybody knows that. Who am I? And you already you know you, you know the conventional answers, so you're not you, you don't uh, feel any impulse to use that. So that there's then the awareness of the of just what a question, a doubt, an uncertainty does to the mind. You're realizing that point where there's where there's no answer, where the mind just goes blank and empty. The thinking process stops. And you're realizing that, where, the, where thought ceases, where thinking has not arisen yet, where the thought ha- that before has ceased and, and another one hasn't arisen, you're, you're realizing, that's a realization of the mind. Because at that point there's awareness, and it's not like you, you've fallen asleep or, or, uh, or in a trance. There's clarity, awareness, awakenness, and there's a knowing, not knowing the answer, but knowing that there's no answer. Knowing the unknown. <coughs> and knowing the known. So when it came to, to a questionnaire, and they say, what is your name? They say, Sumedho Bhikkhu. When an appropriate time to answer the question, then you do. Not a pro- in certain situations, they just want to know what your name is. They're not, there's not, there's not a photo or a koan or anything. There's no point in playing games. So when they say, what is your name, under certain, in certain conditions, I, I say, Sumato Bhikkhu. Sometimes I say, Venerable Sumato Bhikkhu. Sometimes I say, Ajahn Sumato. And then, Sometimes they even use my Christian name, which I don't like to use. I've gotten a ver- uh, not real aversion, but no longer feel uh, that that's uh, my name. So, but I, because it's legally my name on my passport, I have to use it now and then. Someday, maybe the immigration service in the UK will be so advanced, so enlightened that. We can just have blank passports. <laughs> but I, I doubt that I'll be live long enough to see that. Now this is just one way of examining the conditioned and unconditioned, or form and emptiness. If you're making the condition and the unconditioned, like uh, unconditioned can remain a great kind of vast mystery, isn't it? The deathless, unconditioned, unborn, unoriginated can remain something so kind of abstract and so 
you know, the, uh, that you think uh, that you can possibly uh, ever hope to, to realize the unconditioned. Because as a concept, as a kind of intellectual concept, and that it, it is a mind-boggling concept, isn't it? The unconditioned, what could that be? And your mind stops, isn't it? What is unborn, uncreated, unoriginated? Can't, can't get anything from that, can you? Can you get anything out of your head from that? What is it that unborn, uncreated, unoriginated, unconditioned, deathless, can't think of anything, can you? <laughs> so you notice that, that those particular terms, if you think of the created, the born, and the originated, a lot of things come up. This is created, and this is born, and this is originated. This is a, one of the original uh, English Sankatis, Ajahn Prabhupada, double layer, uh, done in the style of, of English Sankatis, kind of a was born here in England. It's a condition. This is a condition. Sumedho Bhikkhu is a condition. The condition we can go on, we can just spend the whole time looking at it. We, we can really get into conditions, can't we? The born, the created, the originated. Oh, what a relief. It's, he's gotten off that unconditioned, unborn, uncreated track. Because nothing comes up in my mind when, when, he, when he talks about that. I just go blank. Don't know what he's talking about. Imagine, I can't imagine anything unborn. But when you talk about birth, wow, my mind really gets going. Birth and uh, sex. <laughs> that really sets human beings off. And a lot of sex and violence and people, uh, personalities. Who is it, you know, what, is, what all the different kind of characters we have here, different personalities and qualities, difference between men and women, different ethnic groups and nationalities and classes and races and types and prototypes. And then there's Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. <laughs> Stravinsky's Rite of Spring. We could go on <laughs> endlessly with the entertainment world of the conditioned realm. What a relief, isn't it? It's so absorbing. There's television, isn't it? We don't have one here, but I mean, the whole world is now watching television. You fly over the slums of Bombay and you see little shacks made out of cardboard and tin with television antennas on them. <laughs> So even the, the poorest, most dismal, poverty-stricken coolie in, in India uh, has a conditioned world to absorb into, as well as the Queen Elizabeth and Princess Di. <laughs> but in the unconditioned, they all, where do they go? Where's Queen Elizabeth, Princess Di? poverty-stricken coolie. Uh, exploring the mind and, and just beginning to see how to, to if the, the intellectual life of a university is all through the conditioned realm, isn't it? You, you study anthropology and psychology and sociology and philosophy and mathematics and all different sciences and the arts and literature and language and all the conditions and it goes on and on and on you're kind of undergraduate and then graduate and then people I knew people in Berkeley that that had been there for years their whole life studying one thing after another you never finish in the university there's always something more to learn some more more conditions to absorb into but with the unconditioned blank, 
This is, Lung Po Cho used to say that. He said, the worldly life, he said, there's no end to it. It just goes on and 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 on. There's never any end to it. You never get anywhere. You just keep going. And you never reach an end. But he said, the holy life, you reach an end. Everything ceases. There's a cessation of the world. The conditions cease. <coughs> So this statement about the conditioned and the unconditioned, it's, it's, uh, it's a reflection and an investigation. So we observe the unconditioned, unborn, uncreated, unoriginated, not as if it were some kind of ultimate truth in some kind of universal uh, way, in some, some great thing that's going to happen where, the, where suddenly the whole, the, the material world dissolved into nothingness or has a moment of total uh, an annihilation, but we can actually witness or begin to understand the relationship of the condition to the unconditioned just through observing thinking. Just how a thought arises and ceases. And the knowing, that ability to know, to be aware, to investigate the self, as that which arises and ceases when there's a thought of me and mine because when you're not thinking me and mine there's no self the self is something that is born into the mind so that we, we